You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all else to me, save that thou Would you join me for a word of prayer? Gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to be together today and to stand before you through the power of your word. Strengthen us and bless us to receive with thanksgiving what you have given us for our own good. This we ask in your precious name, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis states pointedly that there are two sins of which he never speaks or writes because he has never been tempted to those sins himself. Homosexual sex and gambling. It's a good general rule to live by. And since I have never been divorced nor tempted to it, this morning I am wishing I could follow his example. When I set out to preach my way, through this most important of Jesus' public teachings, his Sermon on the Mount, I did not think ahead to today's topic of divorce. As with lust, it is something to which I ought properly dedicate the proverbial month of Sundays, but the painfulness of the topic would quickly induce most people to seek spiritual sustenance elsewhere. So I will do my best to hit the most important points in today's sermon and look forward to simpler, if not less challenging, topics in the weeks to come. I look out and see faces of people I love. People I love very dearly who have endured the difficulty of divorce. And I know that my people in my own family who have been touched by divorce are likely watching via the internet, including my father, who is divorced. When I became a pastor, I made a promise to preach the whole of the Bible's counsel and to do so out of love for God and for the people God loves loved people God loved enough to die for in the person of his son Jesus. So I stand here in fear and trembling before both those forms of love as we begin our exploration of Jesus' teaching today. The truth is I just don't like to hurt people I love or say things that will hurt them. Therefore, I ask you to bear with me as I carefully tackle this topic in a way that is necessarily lengthy. I say that as a disclaimer. I promise I will never preach a sermon this long again. (laughs) My wife shortened it by two pages, so you can thank her later. 
It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus' words are stark. Especially to our ears, because our culture has the highest divorce rate of any in history. But no verse of the Bible stands alone, with a meaning crystal clear and uncomplicated by the lines surrounding it. Indeed, it has been truly said that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. A proof text, in this sense, means that you have decided on what you wanted to believe before you read the Bible. And then you went fishing around in Scripture for a text that would prove that you were right. That is exactly the opposite of the way we are supposed to approach the Bible. For the Bible is God's word to us, and we are to learn from it. At least in part, it is the purpose of the Bible to illumine the meaning of our experiences and refute our false opinions. So when we have uncovered the plain meaning of Scripture... We must allow it to speak to us with all the force of its sometimes deeply offensive power. Jesus' teaching on divorce forms a bridge between the one before it on lust and the one after it about promise-making more generally. The first context for us to consider as we hear his teaching today is the overall biblical witness about marriage and divorce. In Matthew 19, 3-20, when Jesus is asked, asked directly and exclusively about divorce by the Pharisees, he immediately turns to the book of Genesis to delineate God's original plan for marriage. The passages he quotes, Genesis 1:27 and 2:24, are from what modern scholars will call both creation stories. They picture marriage as a thing both properly and naturally rooted in biology, the life for which humans were created. Both first and second Genesis clearly indicate that men and women are created by God in his image and were designed for equality within a relationship that would be as natural to them as breathing. This is why Genesis 2.25 will stipulate that the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Nakedness symbolizes that they had nothing to hide from one another, for there is no need or intention on the part of either to manipulate the other, which is what hiding is always about, and shame is always the result of. The Genesis story also shows clearly that marriage was the first and only form of human community not organized as a result of negotiation and compromise following our fall into sin. As such, marriage is the only pre-political form of human community and the fundamental building block for all of the others. It was designed for paradise and divorce represents a failure for it to be the blessing it was supposed to be. And that is a description that every person I know who has experienced a divorce would devoutly agree with. 
It also means that while sinful humans may find lots of ways to define and recognize marriage in our sinful, fallen political orders, only God's original design represents God's original perfection and can bestow God's original blessing. Everything else falls short. I'm not speaking here primarily of the redefinitions of marriage that our own culture has been engaged in. Every human culture has found different ways to define marriage and other conditions within which to permit sex and divorce. Despite the number of people in the Genesis account, that's two, a woman and a man, later on in Genesis we see Jacob with two wives and two concubines. King David himself had many brides and concubines, first in Hebron and then later in Jerusalem. And King Solomon held the biblical record at 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now while these men represented the rich with means to provide for so many, and the little, middle and lower classes typically had only one or two wives, they set an important cultural precedent, different from God's original intent. The law delivered by Moses allowed for a man to have two wives, one loved and one unloved. That's Deuteronomy 21.15. And also made provision for divorce. And Jesus makes this clear that this, in Matthew 19.8, that this, Moses does this because of the hardness of people's hearts. Now can you imagine marrying someone and forever bearing the designation of the unloved wife? The shame and permanently lower social class that such a title would entail? If you were a woman living in Jesus' day, you would not have to imagine it. And it is to the context of divorce practices in Jesus' day that we must now turn our attention. In Jesus' day, there were two competing schools of rabbinical thought about divorce. The school of Rabbi Shammai held that you could only divorce a woman on the grounds of infidelity or lewd behavior. The school of Hillel, and we see Hillel in the book of Acts, held that a man could divorce his wife even if she spoiled a dish of food for him. That's a quote. Though he would live after the time of Jesus, Rabbi Akiba amply expressed the popular view on divorce in Jesus' day when he wrote that a man could divorce a woman even if he found another fairer than she, for it is written, and it shall be if she found no favor in his eyes. The position of a woman in Jesus' day was precarious. If she displeased her husband in anything, he could simply write her a certificate of divorce and she was instantly homeless and forever separated from her children, who belonged to her husband. With a proper certificate of divorce, she might be married by another man and so gain a home, but only as quote-unquote damaged goods, effectively the unloved wife. And since it involved the honor of the man to marry such a woman, it would be a rare husband who wouldn't make her painfully aware of the abysmal status in which she lived every day of her life. Apart from returning to her family of origin in shame, the only other way a woman had to eke out a living and a place in the community was as a prostitute, which made her an adulteress by definition. This is why Jesus says that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. 
The divorced woman of Jesus' day was either so because she had willingly engaged in adultery or she was made an adulteress by divorce itself. As she prostituted herself to survive either in the home of a new and condescending husband or on the streets in the more traditional sense. It was not so from the beginning, Jesus says emphatically in Matthew 19.8. Jesus clearly takes the position of the more restrictive school of Rabbi Shammai, making it clear that in describing the marriage and divorce practices of ancient Israel, anything after chapter 3 of Genesis in the Old Testament is being descriptive, not prescriptive. It's describing what happened in those days, not what we ought to do in ours. Jesus' teaching here and in chapter 19 makes clear that men cannot keep acting the way they do in the kingdom of God. Jesus' male disciples clearly understand this. As in Matthew 19, 10, they say, well, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, that the man can't just write her a certificate of divorce, it's better not to marry. They don't seem able to fathom the marriage under Jesus' kingdom ethics, where even the women they love cannot be treated as means to their own ends, disposable when they cease to please. They're having trouble understanding marriage as conceived of by God in paradise. This is because from their original dignity as divine image bearers, made from a bone taken from Adam's side and so meant to stand beside him as an equal, women, by Jesus' day, were little more than chattel, the property of their husband or the object of abusive male attention. And the disciples, as well as the women around them, have been conditioned by the sins of their time in their ways of thinking. Feminists, both old and modern, are not without legitimate complaints. But Jesus' complete teachings, presented throughout the pages of the New Testament, will restore the full dignity and equality of the female half of the human race, granting them the same responsibility in marriage and divorce that men have. In Mark 10, 11 and 12, Jesus will state clearly that Quote, if anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is not even a power that women possessed under the Mosaic Covenant. But Jesus, always on the side of the downtrodden and disenfranchised, is holding up the woman's full and equal dignity to the man in God's original plan for marriage. He's leveling the playing field between men and women. Notice, though, that Jesus does not raise the dignity of women by empowering them to behave as poorly as men do. The point of equality in the kingdom of God is that everyone is equally responsible for personal holiness, including their impact on others. What Jesus effectively does in his combined teachings is say that divorce, which is abusive to someone made in God's image, is proscribed utterly out of bounds in the kingdom of God. Whether it is initiated by a man or a woman, 
This is the force of Jesus' teaching. When understood in the context of his time and the scriptures he's quoting. So what does this mean for divorce and, as importantly, the divorcee in our day? Like the rich man in the 18th chapter of Luke's Gospel, we want to know what the bottom line is. Well, no matter how many ways I slice it, I can find no way to make Jesus' words wholly comforting. Divorce is sin. But for those gathered here today who have endured the grief the agonizing torture of seeing the vows you had once made with good intentions smashed to pieces, who have felt the pain of having what God had joined together torn asunder, who remember suffering the almost physical sensation of loss and pain in your chest that we describe in English with the devastatingly accurate phrase heartache. I suspect you're not surprised to hear that. I've never met a person, even a person who is much more happy on their own or with a new spouse, who has endured the process of a divorce, who would not admit that the anger, bitterness, sadness, and broken promises entailed in that experience must realistically be categorized under the label of sin. Indeed, those who have come to a happier place in their lives must confess that to be true. Or they're saying they're in no better state now than they were back then. So are Christians permitted to divorce? While it is sin and causes much pain, not only to the participants, but to the children and extended family of the parties involved? I believe that the answer is yes. Under certain conditions, we are. The circumstances in question are when there is abuse within the marriage, observable or unobservable from the outside. The persistent denigration of the full dignity of one person as a bearer of God's image by another within a marriage amounts to an ongoing situation of abuse and is grounds, however regretfully, for divorce. Though divorce is indeed a sin, in a, sin, a fallen world whose prince is Satan, the truth is we may be forced to choose the lesser of two evils. Because the reality is that fallen humanity is creative in its ability to sin. And not only to sin, but to cause exquisite and torturous pain to those around us, including those we have married especially when we're angry at them for reasons justified or unjustified. Jesus has prescribed divorce that abuses others, forcing them into further sin, but there are many ways to abuse a person besides betraying the marriage bed. In ways that may not be apparent to those outside the home, denigrating and demoralizing behavior may go on in a marriage that amounts to abuse that justifies divorce even under Jesus' strict guidelines. The kind of divorce that is forbidden for Christians is what sociologist Barbara Defoe Whitehead of Rutgers University calls expressive divorce. Christians are not supposed to divorce someone just because they think they'll be happier with someone else or alone. 
that is, as a means of self-expression or in the pursuit of happiness. That would amount to reinstituting the permissive divorce regime of Rabbi Hillel, which Jesus repudiates, albeit with Christians now becoming equal opportunities offenders because both men and women can initiate the process. One cultural note on that issue. No-fault divorce was first introduced to the United States the year before I was born. Its aims were laudable, to allow people, particularly women, to more easily escape abusive marriages. Five decades later, it has made marriage into the most easily broken legal contract in American life. Many of our brother and sister Christians who are listening to this sermon with great emotional pain, recalling their own divorces, were plunged into that process against their will when they would have liked to try to save their marriage. By removing the impediments and disincentives to divorce, no-fault divorce has caused much great and lasting pain to both former spouses and the children of people who simply thought they might be happier if they left their marriage. That sort of justification of divorce is forbidden to people who want to feel at home in the kingdom of God, who call Jesus Lord. And the modern notion of falling in love in the hope of a happily ever after is also not the biblical grounds for marriage. It is the cliché of fairy tales. While Christians do not do, well, Christians do indeed look for a happily ever after, first and foremost, of course, in eternity, but also here in this life. We know that the passive experience, that the very language of falling in love bespeaks is not the way to get there. In fact, most people throughout history knew that, which is why stories from the Iliad to Romeo and Juliet to Pride and Prejudice, my own favorite book, are cautionary tales about the dangers of romantic feelings. Jesus prescribes for us the way of love, the way of love, rather than falling in love. Jesus calls us to love others actively rather than experience emotions passively. By doing so, we build our relationships, including our marriages, on a more enduring foundation than the shifting sand of our feelings. In all of his teachings, and progressively here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to the path of enduring happiness which is, in the end, the path of being like Him in our character. It's the path of Christ-likeness, the path that former generations focused on as the path of holiness. Has Jesus set the standard for marriage hopelessly high? No. Rather than establishing hopelessly high standards, I believe that what Jesus is doing is calling us to a hopefully high vision of what marriage can and was meant to be. Jesus is giving us a God's eye view of what is desired rather than a human's eye view of what is required. Theologian Nancy Piercy states very poignantly, I think, that having a Christian worldview means being utterly convinced that biblical principles are not only true, but also work better in the grit and grime of the real world. Whatever our history, 
However, we have sinned or been sinned against in the past. Inside or outside of marriage, we are forgiven and restored through the same blood of Jesus Christ. He justifies us, sets us right before God. And we trust in Him for salvation and His teachings to guide our lives from this point on along a better path than the one we've walked so far. Just as we hear Jesus' words and commit ourselves to new ways of dealing with anger and lust, so we hear them and commit to new ways of dealing with marriage. I hope you notice that whether you've been happily married for 60-odd years or have had to endure the pain of divorce, Jesus' teachings on divorce and, by extension, the nature of marriage should not leave any of us feeling too comfortable. For which of us has truly treated what an earlier, more honest age called our better half as though they really were just that? A part of us that we would no more hurt than we would drive a knife into our own flesh. Haven't we all at times thought first of our needs, our wants? Can't all of us who are or who have been married Remember a time during an argument when we almost forgot what we were arguing about, but the one thing we were absolutely certain of is that we were going to win. Or perhaps more honestly, we weren't going to let them win. All of us, married, divorced, or single, stand before Jesus on equal footing as sinners. And so all of us can take equal hope and inspiration from the picture of divorce and marriage he paints for us through the scriptures. Like the woman caught in the act of adultery in John 8, we should not hear Jesus condemning us, but saying to us, here, in this moment, neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. If we are single or divorced, As our feelings develop as we date, we can hold before ourselves the question, is this someone who will support me in growing in my relationship with God in the path of holiness? Is this someone I can support in doing the same? When we fight, will we both bow to the lordship of Jesus as we seek a resolution to our conflict or just arm wrestle our way to detente? Am I willing to love them actively? seeking their welfare as though they are my own flesh even when I'm not feeling it? Am I willing to forgive them when they screw up and repent? And do I believe they're willing to do the same for me? If we are married, like I am, you just take those same kind of questions and ask ask yourself, how can I better do all those things for my spouse right now? To marry as a Christian is to marry with the full intention of pursuing holiness with your spouse and supporting them on the same path until death parts you. It is a truly life-giving path, for Jesus is always with us to help us grow in the way we need. If we marry merely for happiness or spend our married lives pursuing that, we may get lucky and find as much of that happiness as we are capable of as fallen creatures. 
But if we seek holiness, life with Christ in and through our marriage, we will certainly find both holiness and happiness beyond anything our circumstances could predict. And I was taught that most clearly by Mark and Lori. Mark and Lori were members of my congregation who were fairly active, kind of every other Sunday because they were busy and, and in and out. They never came to extra things, but their kids came to vacation, Bible school, and you know, they, they didn't come to Bible class, but they were too busy. I mean, they were, they were good-looking, accomplished, both of them excelling in their careers, and their kids were on the same track, doing well in school and in lots of sports, and so they were always on the run. And so we would exchange niceties at the back of the congregation as they were on their way out of church. But when they were there, they were very engaged and active. I could see that they were thinking about what was being said and, and trying to process it. So they were, they were good people, and I just knew them as part of the congregation. I really got to know them, though, when Lori scheduled a time to come to my office. And when she arrived, told me that she had just broken to Mark that she'd had an extramarital affair. And she said, Pastor, we're not dealing with it very well. By her own telling of the story, she was miserable as she engaged in it. She met this man, a man who had had a crush on her in high school twice as they were preparing for a class reunion. She cried her way through both experiences and wasn't even sure why she'd done what she had done. Maybe she said, I just wanted to feel special again, like a priority. I met with Mark and Lori many times in the coming months and years. We'd meet and there would be tears and resolutions and they would go home and try and then we'd meet again. Round and around we went until they came to the point where they realized that they had been wrapping their faith around their lifestyle rather than their lifestyle around their faith. They wanted to have Christianity and have Jesus, but have what the world was promising too and have it on the world's terms. So they started to reorient their life, to orient their life around the divine, to pray more together, to discuss scripture in the mornings over coffee. They moved to a smaller house that they could afford with less hours in their workplace. Spent more time focusing on each other and their children and not getting their children from activity to activity but just time with their children. Until finally, despite the fact that what had precipitated all of this was the very sin that Jesus said could end, legally end a marriage, their marriage was stronger than it had ever been before. That is the kind of life, the kind of marriage that God intended for us from the very beginning.
a blessing to us and those we touch. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, your words are for our good. And even when they wound, we know they wound like a scalpel, cutting out the gangrene, a surgeon's knife restoring us to health. Help us, O oh Lord, to cling to your word. First and foremost, the word of the cross, which proclaims our salvation and the forgiveness of all our sins. And next, to the words of your teaching, which will guide us ever into a better course of life. Lord, if we are divorced, if we have suffered that pain in our lives, whether we've been the cause or the victim, grant us, O oh Lord, to do better moving forward. And Lord, for those of us who are married, grant us the very same thing that we might treat our beloved as one who came from our own side or whose side we are supposed to stand next to, an equal in dignity and a bearer of your image. May we truly love our spouse by seeking what is best for them. And so may we become a blessing for those around us. Into your hands we commend ourselves, O Lord praying for your guidance and mercy through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and